To preserve this true Christian doctrine about the Holy Supper, and to avoid and abolish many idolatrous abuses and perversions of this testament, the following useful rule and standard has been derived from the words of institution. Nothing has the nature of a sacrament apart from the use instituted by Christ or apart from the action divinely instituted. This means if Christ's institution is not kept as he appointed it, then there is no sacrament. Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. A new theme, a new season, but the same show that you know and love. Zellwin, how are you? I'm doing great, Willie. I also enjoy the new music. It's a n- nice to get a little bit of a, a shake-up, but things we, are... Get- we should Go say ahead. same song, you know, new right. new style, right? <laughs> new style, yes. Same substance, new style. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Lutheran style, anime substance. There we go. Yeah, exactly. Lutheran substance, anime style. That's what I'm trying to say. But think, but for the gratuitous weather posting, which we haven't done in a couple months now. I know. And the weather, she's a changed. She's changed quite a bit. The Up here in North Dakota, we've had an early winter, although it's kind of gone back to fall a little bit again. Snow pretty heavily in the middle part of the state and in the eastern part, but over here in the west, we're just kind of trucking along with just heavy winds. So that's that's just kind of where we're at. What's what's Illinois look like, Willie? You know, it's been a little wet this week. However, we are uh, entering into a cold snap, so it feels like fall, but gets a little little chilly at night. We had some frost this morning, so I think fall is finally here. We didn't think it was going to make it, but she finally did uh, make her appearance. Uh, you know, last of the pumpkins are off the vine. Still getting gourds. So that's a little weird, but that's the weather posting for uh, central Illinois right now. I like how you're talking about, you know, finally being into fall. And I'm like, yeah, it's already winter up here. So, <laughs> right. Well, you only have two seasons, you know, winter and mild winter. <laughs> True story. True story. So. So we've got a lot of exciting things coming up on this season of Word Fitly Spoken, and we're really going to try to tackle a lot of uh, listener questions. And so the first one is today's episode about receptionism. Now, why why are we tackling this, Zelwyn? Well, receptionism is one of those things that kind of keeps coming up again and again regarding the Lord's Supper, and it really is a question of, how do we properly understand the Lord's Supper? And which is why I think it's a, a helpful a helpful topic to really delve into and to, to tackle at some length so that we can understand what it is that our Lord has instituted. Would you agree? Uh, certainly. I mean, we want to rightly understand the Lord's Supper. As we try to do a word fitly spoken, even if there's a position that we disagree with, we try to give it as fair a shake as we can. That makes for stronger arguments. Um, in our favor, but it also, you know, it's just the right thing to do. You know, we don't want to bear false witness against our opponents if we can help it. Right. And and so we take the long way around. That's why we're giving receptionism a whole hour instead of just, you know, uh, making fun of it or something and and moving along as we often do. I I think receptionism as a term, and you're free to agree or disagree here. I think receptionism as a term is one of those, it's become kind of just an epithet that we throw around. Absolutely. I mean, I I think that when people talk about receptionism, they almost always do so with the purpose of saying how terrible it is. And so it's like, so, unfortunately, like so many things that we argue in our day and age, we just kind of throw words out there without really taking the time to really see why very respectable theologians in the past held to what could be called a receptionist position and very respectful Lutheran theologians as well. So even if, yeah, we we don't agree with it, and it's something that we are not going to say, oh, this is right, but at the same time, we want to at least be fair so that we can at least say, this is exactly why they were, you know, where they went off the rails. Very well said, Zellin. So as we dive into this question then, what is receptionism? Uh, what's a good definition for it, and, and why the discussion is so important? Yeah, 
And unfortunately, we have to kind of come at it from the long way to actually define what it is, because if you don't understand where like the Book of Concord is coming from on questions of the sacrament, you're not really going to understand what receptionism is. And I know that sounds like a, a weasel answer, but you really do have to lay the groundwork, in my opinion, before we can finally get around to actually describing receptionism. Does that sound fair? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So it's a question of sacramental union. What does that mean? When you're dealing with the question of the Lord's Supper, we're we're talking about the question of when does the bread and the wine, for that matter, become united with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because we say, of course, as Lutherans, along with the Bible, you know, this is my body, this is my blood. But the question is, is when does that occur? And how do we know that that has occurred? Because if we don't really know when or how it occurs, we then any old bread or any old wine could become the body and the blood. Right. If you if you speak too loud, some bread, you know, maybe left over in the cupboard in the church pantry is now consecrated. Yeah, all the stuff in my immediate vicinity is now consecrated because I said the words. No, we obviously don't. We don't believe that. We believe that we have to be able to define when it actually occurs. So when does the sacramental union occur is one of the primary questions at work here. And the other question, that, as I alluded to, is what constitutes the Lord's Supper? Like what, what make you know? What do we have to have in order for it to be the supper? Right, and we're we're dealing with two different but related questions. One, you know, the duration as well, the duration of the union. Also, is there a difference between the question of the duration and the question of the right use of the body and blood? which is all tied up with this definition. Right. So it, it, you can see it immediately becomes kind of a, a sticky question. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this is going to be one of our more technical episodes. Right. We'll get back to Brigham Young in, in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we'll get, we'll get into some other things. But, yeah, I mean, but we have, this is one of those, it's one of those things, you know, receptionist gets thrown out there like pietist or racist. You know, something to just shut down. <laughs> To just shut down a conversation. All so, right. so, okay, can we then ask the question, what, what aren't we talking about here? What is, what is the formula of Concord, for example, or the solid declaration specifically, when it's talking about the sacrament and the character of a sacrament, what is it reacting to? Well, the, the, what it's reacting to primarily is what you can consider the Roman Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper. For the, the Roman Catholics, the the sacramental union begins when a validly ordained priest speaks the words of institution over the elements, at which point they believe that it transubstantiates or actually becomes the body and blood of the Lord, and the bread and wine are what they call only accidents. It's a very philosophical understanding. Yeah, the only the accidents remain, so the form and taste and smell. Yeah, so it, it looks like it, but it really isn't. But the what makes the Lord's Supper then is only this point. Only when the priest has spoken these words does it actually become the Lord's Supper. And then, regardless of how you use the sacrament afterwards, it still remains the body and blood of the of the Lord. So that's why the Roman Catholics, for example, yeah. have monstrances. That's why they have Corpus Christi processions, monstrances being where they actually display it for adoration, that sort of thing. You don't ever sure. actually have to partake it. You don't have to Exactly. Eat it. So what you have is, one, you have to have the validly ordained priest do it. And then, right. and then second, there is a sacramental benefit of adoring the host rather than eating and drinking. So that's right. why it's, it's put in monstrances or in even in tabernacles for, for two main reasons. One, a good reason, I would argue, out of respect for the body and blood. I think we can get behind that at least to some degree. But sure. the second issue is that they believe in a sacramental benefit to it. It's possibly lesser than the actual eating and drinking, but you can still receive something of a spiritual communion through what they would call a perpetual adoration. So that means that the body and blood of Jesus in a monstrance, 
or even in a tabernacle is perpetually there, like say in a chapel, where you can come and adore it and receive some kind of grace through that. I think that's a fair representation of of that concept. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's not like you're going there just to hang out with Jesus and spend some time. You know, they, they actually believe that there is a, a benefit that you receive through this. Now, our perspective on this is, I mean, it does sound fine. And I, and I think that there are reverent ways that we handle the consecrated elements after the Lord's Supper. But do we have a scriptural warrant for adoring the host in such a way in these contexts outside of the divine service? Well, that and that's really what the what the formula of Concord is reacting against. Actually, the Book of Concord in general, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, is saying no. We don't have any kind of scriptural warrant for being able to do this. We need to look to see what Jesus has actually told us to do, which in this case is to take, eat. This is my body, and so very quickly, uh, Lutheranism begins to say, well, in order for it to be the supper. It's not so much about the, the I how do you want to put it? It's not just the words of institution that make it the supper, but it has to be the whole, sacri- what they call the sacramental action altogether for it to be a complete and ac- actually, I hate to use the term, but valid sacrament. If you don't have all, all the parts together, you don't have the Lord's Supper, okay? For the Lutherans, this was three parts. That they 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 that the form that the solid declaration defines, which is the consecration itself, the distribution of the elements, actually you know giving them, and then actually receiving them. If you don't have all three of those pieces together, you don't have the sacrament. Which is why, like in the very beginning, as a part of our cold open, when we read from the solid declaration, nothing has the character of a sacrament outside of its use instituted by Christ or outside of the divinely instituted action, okay? And that was an important rule that they really held to because that way they could say, now we are following what it is that our Lord wants us to do, which is to actually take it and eat it, and that is how we know we have the Lord's Supper. Yeah, and well, and have any benefit from it. And, and I think that that's where the question then gets a little muddied for us today. We confuse that statement with saying that it's, not the Lord's body and blood out, you know, outside of this, but the main point, or I mean, outside of the action, however, that's kind of a separate question. And that's, that's where there's, there's been debate throughout the years. And that's how we come to the consecrationism versus receptionism debate. It's meant to be about something happening within the service. And it actually becomes a debate about what happens after the service. Right. In a lot of ways. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, it is what it is. And Different. yeah, and so, but but it is true. You don't receive, as far as we know, as far as God has revealed, uh, we don't receive benefit apart from eating and drinking. Right. But that doesn't mean that it's the eating and drinking that, that activates it. And, right. and I think that that's, that's where the controversy comes in with receptionism. Well, and I'm actually going to argue that's something of a, a misnomer, at least. Certainly, certainly. That's a receptionist, but we'll we'll get to that. Right, but that but this is where the debate has the sands have shifted, you know, right. and that's that's kind of where the debate has has settled. You know, we got a a few more minutes in this segment. Do you want to move on into uh, receptionist theologians, or do you want to talk a little bit more about the three parts? Uh, let's let's break down the three parts just a little bit more. Just so that I that we can fully understand, because this the three parts are really going to help us understand where re- the receptionist position comes from, and it's really going to kind of form the backbone of the rest of the discussion. So, when we're talking about the consecration, obviously we're talking about the point when you know you know this this is my body, this is my blood. The words themselves are spoken out loud for the benefit of the people. That is the beginning of the sacramental action in the formula of Concord, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we insist on it being audible and actually being, you know, so everyone can hear it, contrary to at least some Roman Catholic understandings, because it is also something that faith latches onto, you know, to say, this is my body given for you for the forgiveness of sins. So the people benefit from that, you know, their faith is strengthened through that even before 
uh, they actually receive the body and blood itself. You have to know what you're receiving. Right. And then as we distribute, which will be the next part, we are actually telling them what they are receiving and what they are to do. Right. I mean, it's it's something that pretty much every confer- or every communicant member in our congregations understands. But take and eat is both a com- – I mean, it's, a, it's instruction that we're giving, but right. it's also what the Lord tells us to do. It's also the word. Which is which is exactly the point of the formula. Right. I mean, because the, the exactly. Roman Catholic understanding would say once you've hit the consecration, it doesn't matter what you do after that point. That right. it's still the Lord's Supper. But we're saying we need to listen to what Jesus is actually telling yeah. us to do. So both the consecration and the distribution are straight word of God, and then the reception is the obedience to that word of God. Right. And I know I just brought obedience into the sacrament, so better better check that email spam filter. We're going to be getting some. Well, I mean, our Lord has told us to do this. Isn't that part of how we define a sacrament anyway? Is that, you know, something that God has commanded for his church to do? I mean, we are following after him. Yes, we're receiving his benefit. Yes, we're receiving the faith which comes from these things. And faith is being strengthened through these things. But at the same time, yeah, faith is also a an act of obedience. It is actually doing what God wants you to do. I mean, we we would say that there's a real problem with somebody who says, okay, I know what, you know, okay, but no thanks. You know, I don't need it. You know, I don't need to listen to this or whatever. There's a problem with their faith there. So faith does, in obedience, receive what God is giving to it. Word fitly spoken likes to keep the nouns, nouns, and the verbs, verbs, if we can. Um, Fair fairly enough. simple grammar. You don't, you know, you don't need to. You don't need to go back to Machen's Greek to figure that one out. All right, now that all very good, and, and it's clear though. I mean, this is the thing when when you have something like the Lord's Supper, which is a profound doctrine, right. And it is a profound gift, and it is a deep mystery. We don't, we're not making light of that when we say that the scriptural instruction is clear. It's like the scriptural admonitions concerning the Lord's Supper is clear, but, but the institution of the Lord's Supper could not be more clear from the three gospel writers and from St. Paul. This is what it is, this is how you do it, and this is what you are to do, and, you're, and to do it often. And maybe, and maybe just to emphasize the reception part of it too, just to not, it's not just the, it's not just the re- receiving in faith, but also something that Lutheranism yeah. has always been against is, you know, what, it, okay, you consecrate it, you just, dis- you distribute it. Well, then what if you just take the, the host home, for example, you take right, the Right, and that's home. where I was going with this. Okay. There, there is not a command to put it up and, and, and to hang out with it, or to put the host up and hang out with the host. <laughs> or or something like that. It's always the host, you know. I don't know that the adoration of the wine is not as as big a deal, although it does happen. <laughs> it does happen, yeah. Uh, so, and I'm not trying to make light of their practice here. We're just simply trying to say that, along with the with the formula, is, is that this is where we know that Christ has commanded something. Christ has instituted this Himself. There is no doubt here. The waters are not murky. Regarding this, you are to take this. What are you taking? The actual body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you're eating and drinking it for the forgiveness of sins. That's the promise attached to the entire sacrament there. And to, and, and to be a sacrament, you've got, you have the Lord's institution, the elements that he said. I'm getting rather Augustinian here. That's okay. So you got the the promise and the element. I mean, you got the word there, and, and then boom. And I know we're sounding like Protestants here, but uh, <laughs> it is what it is. I went from Augustine to Protestants. Take 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 with with it what you want. And we we just get too clever, Zellman is really what I'm saying here. It's like when you start talking about how is Jesus present, and then the equivocating teacher in the church comes along and, and does the well actually thing. Well, well, how is he actually present? Oh, oh, you said he's physically present. Well, no, he is physically present. It is his body. It's his actual body. We believe that, right? Right. These men just want to want to make something that's really quite simple, quite clear, and make it very murky. And that's what we're trying to avoid here. 
because then you end up with with silly practices. And even with this three part, you know, three parts to the sacrament or you don't have a sacrament. I mean, that sounds like it could be making it kind of murky again. But it's not really an attempt to explain how this happens. Like, you know, we're going to explain how right, right. Jesus is united sacramentally here. What it really is just a, a tr- an attempt to safeguard against abuse. And that's really all it's trying yeah, to and do. That's what, that was, that's what we're saying. What, what you have here, why is this a sacrament? Why can we say the Lord's Supper is clearly a sacrament is my point. Not right. to just give it the, the kind of Augustinian definition here. But we know that this is a sacrament and that this is, this is, this is a means of grace because Christ clearly lays that out for us in the scriptures. Right. Right. Well, we're at our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back to Word Fitly, Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, talking the Lord's Supper, specifically receptionism. How to define it? What is it? What do we do with it? So we've laid the groundwork for the discussion, framed it, you know, in its historical context. So now we need to talk about what these theologians actually say. So let's take a look at some theologians who certainly lean toward the receptionist position if we can't outright pin it on them. So let's, where, where do we want to start, Zellin? Well, maybe just before we dive into the, the theologians themselves, let me give the uh, the long-promised definition of receptionism. Because we've talked about how the formula of Concord defines receptionism, but now I want to actually take a moment so that we understand what's going on when we talk about these different theologians. Receptionism is an insistence on the totality of the sacramental action, okay? It is an insistence on all three parts as defined in the formula of Concord actually being there before, and this is what makes it different, before the sacramental union can occur. So in other words, and I know that sounds extremely technical, but I'm going to try to break it down as best as I can. As long as you, when you have the consecration, the distribution, and the reception all together, and you are at the point of receiving the elements, that is when the receptionist will say that we have the complete sacrament and the sacramental union when G- when it becomes, I hate to use becomes, but when the body and blood, when it is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The difference between that and say the formula of Concord has has been the formula of Concord sees the union as occurring throughout the whole of the three parts, throughout the consecration, throughout the, the distribution, through and in the reception. Although it would also say that if you don't have all three together, you don't have the sacrament, okay? There wouldn't be the body and blood of the Lord unless you had all three of them together. Receptionism puts that union at the end of the action rather than throughout the whole thing. Is that fair? I think that's fair. More than fair. I mean, it's it's the accurate okay. representation. I don't think you can really be more fair than that. And so what might be the issue with that then? Well, the issue that comes in and is if we're pinning the union at one part of the action, and we're saying that up until that point, you can't really say that, you know, it is you actually have the body and blood. Well, that might lead to some less than ideal practices. You know, the that and this is kind of what I think people react against the most. 
And it also can be a little bit disruptive to our uh, understanding of the sacrament because we're saying, oh, well, it doesn't really matter up until that point. So I really do think it is an issue of how does faith receive this? And notice I didn't say faith made it because that's not what any good receptionist ever said. Faith had nothing to do with making it the sacrament, but faith receives that benefit. And why would you try to introduce more questions into this thing than you need to, right? Because, I mean, this is all a very technical discussion. I'll give you that. But when you try to figure out, okay, the union has is only occurs when you have the total action, well, that's just another question that we're kind of piling on. What would you see as the primary problem, Willie? Well, no, I think I think you hit the the nail on the head. I mean, it's 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 saying it's only this at this moment alone, essentially. Right. So when I say take eat, this is my body. Is it not? I mean, do, do you need right. to modify it to take eat? This is about to be my body. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that's too rationalistic, but it's kind of the idea there. Uh, you know, it, it, receptionism isn't though saying that that it's your personal faith then that's making it into the sacrament right you know which which is something we would absolutely reject is it fair though to say that receptionism comes close to saying that your eating and drinking makes it the sacrament so your eating and drinking plus these other parts make it well no no hold on not the sacrament because uh, now we're kind of mixing terms here to say right. that your eating and drinking is what makes it into the lord's body and blood so that it's not until you chew that you can actually say. Well, and you see, and this is and this is where I do take some issue because there are receptionist the, uh, theologians, and I'll talk about some of them here in just a minute, who would reject any kind of notion of a specific like mathematical point. Right. Okay. Right. And Which I think I that's think- fair, though. I think that's a good thing. Probably, you know, what I get what they're trying to do. Right. Right. Does it create more problems than it solves? I think so. I really do think it creates more problems than it solves. But we also have to be fair because they would reject like, you know, the moment it hits your lips, it becomes Jesus or something. That's not what receptionism in its best form ever said. It really is a question of and an insistence on the total action so that we have so that we're trying to follow as closely as possible, at least in their minds, what it is that the Lord wants us to do. But I think the problem comes in is because because we're assuming, the receptionist position assumes that the union occurs at the totality of the action. That's where the problem comes in. Not from their, their motives or not from you know what they're doing or whatever, but because they're basically trying to pinpoint something that really can't be pinpointed. <laughs> sure, that's fair. So we want to Let's take a listen to what um, some of them actually said. Okay. So the first theologian who could legitimately be called a receptionist occurs very early, and that is Aegis Hunnius. Hunnius is a post-Reformation theologian. He's kind of, I mean, he is a big name. I believe he was at Wittenberg. And a lot of the things that Hunnius says are very good. But the the point that I really want to bring out here, and this is a quote from Hunnius, will help us to see where this kind of gets started. Hunnius says this, Just as the bread is the koinonia, that is the communion, of the body of Christ in the very act of eating only and not before, so also the bread is only sacramentally united with the body when this koinonia and reception happens. So there's a lot to unpack there in what Hunnius is saying. But basically, in my opinion, what he's saying is, is just as the bread is the communion in the act of eating and not before, so also the union happens in the eating and not before. And in his mind, at least, what he's trying to do is preclude any kind of Roman Catholic understanding, which would say that it is the, the, the Lord's Supper in the, the words themselves with nothing else attached to it. So again, he's really trying to emphasize that you need to actually take it and eat it in order for it to be the body and blood of our Lord. Now, again, and we can talk about this, Willie, we would say that, yeah, that's a little bit problematic, but at least you can see what it is that he's trying to do, right? Yeah, you absolutely can see where these guys are, are coming from. So with these guys, too, after Hunnius comes other fairly major theologians who say the same thing. 
one important one being uh, Quenstedt. Quenstedt is a much later theologian, an important dogmatician who is who kind of helps to formulate Lutheran orthodoxy. But Quenstedt says this. He says, this very sacramental union does not happen except in the distribution. So again, by trying to locate where the union is happening, he's doing it with an eye towards saying, this is, you know, as long as the whole action is happening, then we know that the union is also occurring. Mm-hmm. Okay. And a third one, perhaps a little bit surprising to some people, would be Gerhard himself. He says this. We add that the repetition of this first institution, that is when Jesus first actually did it, is not only historical or doctrinal, but also consecratory, in which, according to the ordaining of Christ, the external symbols are truly and efficaciously destined for sacred use, so that in the very distribution, they are the koinonia of the body and blood of Christ. And trying to put that in a little bit simpler terms, he's saying that we don't say the words of institution just because, you know, we're like calling up history or we're trying to do this, you know, just to set forth a doctrine. But what those words do is actually bring about the sacred use, actually bring about the Lord's Supper, but so that in the distribution of the same, and not just, you know, just the words all by themselves, they become the koinonia of the body and blood of Christ. So again, this emphasis pretty much throughout Lutheran orthodoxy, at least one very particular strain, says that when you have the reception, the totality of the sacramental action, you have the sacramental union. I've said a lot, Willie. How do you want to break that down? But they're all saying that more or less it hap- the union officially happens at the distribution. Because now it's Voltron. You have all the pieces together. Now you have Voltron, right? <laughs> right, right. Voltron was a robot of many pieces. Or am I yes. thinking of... So- yeah, there we go. No, no, you're on the right track. <laughs> not, the, yeah. not the vehicle one either. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so boom, you put it together. Now Sacramento Voltron. There we go. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you can see why people would be sympathetic to this. You can right. see why, although we would disagree that these men are not evil. Right. <laughs> you know? well, I'll, I'll yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, because the lines get drawn that way. Right. So a lot of times guys will, will draw this line here and say that these men are, are heretics for saying something like that. Right. And, and, and that's just charged language. I don't know that, that, that that's actually true. If, if they're guilty of anything, it might just be simply over-explaining or attempting to over-rationalize it. I think that that would be fair, but good grief, we'd all be cast into <laughs> eternal perdition if if that were the case. Well, and and maybe this is something that I think you can say of the Lutheran Orthodox period in general, is that because they were having to react against Roman Catholic opponents, they're having to react against the upcoming, uh, you know, Reformed and Calvinist opponents and stuff like that, they're really kind of forced into a corner where they really have to very carefully explain themselves. And the way that they chose to do that is the way that they kind of knew how, which is to go back to old kind of scholastic distinctions, kind of the Aristotelian distinctions, trying to figure out, you know, how does this all fit together into this way of thinking? Now, was that a problem? Yes, I do think it was a problem. But it you really do become a little bit more sympathetic towards them when you understand that, yeah, they're really just trying to explain as best as they can without being unfaithful to God. Something against, you know, on the one hand, people saying, well, you know, transubstantiation and all this sort of thing. And on the other hand, people saying, well, you know, it's just a spiritual remembrance. You know, Christ is not physically present. So I I really do think that we, we shouldn't paint them with a terrible rap because they they were in a tough, a tough spot. Well, I mean, yeah. Is that worth discussing a little bit? Not, um, you know, not so much the contrast between them and Rome, but also the contrast between them and Geneva. Sure. And this is where you talk about Calvin's doctrine of the Lord's Supper, which doesn't really have a, a concept of sacramental union as we understand right. it. Right. There's a union with Christ that is only a spiritual union. It's become kind of common in our circles to say that Calvin 
or the Calvinists rather, the, the confessional reformed believe that you spiritually ascend to heaven and commune with Jesus in that way. Right. That's not quite the formula that they, as I understand it from reformed theology, although in a couple of instances you have Calvin saying something like that, or at least agreeing to language like that, it never quite becomes codified in that way. And so I think that's an important distinction we need to make. You know, if you want to debate reformed, debate against the Westminster standards or the three forms of unity or something. But anyway, I'm getting getting into the weeds here. I think it's helpful, though, because even though the Lutheran Orthodox are not arguing, in this case, against the re- the reformed, you know, the Calvinists, the, the confessional reformed, because that's not really what they have in mind when they're talking about things like the receptionist position. I think it is helpful to see that they are basically trying to defend themselves against a two a two front uh, war here, and so that's why it is important to bring that up. But go ahead. No, I mean that's you know that's they're they're trying to just say let's lock it in where the scriptures say. So the scriptures right. over here say, "Take eat, this is my body," and that's what they say to the Romanists. And then over here, they say, this is my body. There is a union that happens here, you know, a true sacramental union to the reform side. And so what is their best remedy to this to stay, as they see it, as close to the scriptural parameters and not go beyond that? Because the Roman Catholic position does go beyond scripture. Right. And the reform and the reform position refuses to take scripture at face value, refuses to take scripture for its plain meaning. Right. Yep. And and so this is their way of, of staying safely within biblical boundaries. Which now they end up going off the rails, as we as would one say. does. Yeah, as one does. And we we recognize that with the Lutheran Orthodox and other matters too, because you know we don't agree to the Lutheran Orthodox position of intuitu fide. That's elect, yeah, election foreseeing individual faith in a person, election right. on that basis. Which was almost universally held with among the Lutheran Orthodox, but we rightly said, no, that's not quite right. Right, and which so, is not the position, you know, of Luther or the Bible. <laughs> to put none too fine. But there is, a, there is a theological shift that happens in a relatively short amount of time between, you know, the, the Luther's time— and between the age of orthodoxy. Right. right. So it's it gets a little complicated. And that's fine. That's the way it that's the way it goes. Yeah. And that's why you see people like po- the popularity of these authors ebb and flow. And Gerhard especially. You know, he's been kind of revived, but then you see people pushing back against him because they want to call him a pietist or whatever. You know, there's another loaded term. And <laughs> Because they open, they hear age of orthodoxy, and they think it's all this cut and dry, everybody just high-fiving each other in their books and agreeing. And when you look at the different ages of Lutheranism, it's actually a, quite a bit more complicated than that. Right, right. Especially if we just take, you know, like, a, early, you know, initial era, age of orthodoxy, and then the 19th century era. Just those three, you look at how, you know, how different things get. Right. And I'm not saying that in, in in like doctrine has changed, but there there is disagreement. Frankly, I mean you, you can't you can't reconcile election and two e two fide with the confessional position on election because right. they're they're not the same position. But they would also understand themselves as being confessional. It's not like they sat it's down true. one day and said, you know, no, yeah, they, yeah, they 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 are not disagreeing with the confessions, and that's the difficulty of our task when we look at historical theology, right? is, well, here's one group which would claim to be confessional that actually believes that the confession says something different than this other group who claims to be confessional. And that's kind of how our little mini-civil war starts within the various synods. Yeah, exactly. Well, then this is this is why we emphasized at the beginning that when we're dealing with historical theology like this, we really just kind of have to take things as they are rather than trying to quickly pass some kind of judgment upon them. Yes, we disagree with these men, but we have to understand them before we can say why we disagree with them. And that's what we've been trying to do here. Absolutely. Well, we're coming up on the second break. On the other side, we're going to talk about more modern Lutheran theologians and receptionism, and then we're going to talk about consecrationism to round out the discussion. 
Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back to A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grills and Zelwyn Heidi talking about receptionism. Well, we went through some theologians of the age of orthodoxy, so now, Zelwyn, why don't you take us through a few modern theologians and see what they have to say about this position. Well, modern being a relative term, but well, you know. <laughs> from a few generations ago, but still influential in our own day. The first one to kind of, well, I don't know if he was the first one, but the, one of the big ones for our circles to pick this up would be, of course, C.F.W. Walther. In his pastoral theology, actually quotes Quenstedt and Hunnius directly without further comment. And by doing so, he's showing his basic agreement with what he understands to be a Lutheran Orthodox position. And so receptionism, as we've defined it, enters into the Missouri Synod through Walther. And you could also even show some further agreement with what Walther is saying, because when he edits a Byers compendium of positive theology, which was kind of the, the first dogmatic textbook that they use in the Missouri Synod, he adds more quotes to kind of underline what Byer was also saying, which was the same kind of receptionist position. So this is definitely as we've defined it on this episode, what Walther believes. And Pieper, Francis Pieper, the, in the generation after Walther, Walther's kind of major successor, does the same thing in his dogmatics, which is to quote Quenstedt and Hunnius without comment. So he's basically saying, this is what, you know, I, this is what I'm presenting as orthodox belief. Do you want to talk about Walther and Pieper a little bit more? There is one more I want to talk about, but... Well, I mean, what what else is there to say? They they quote these two guys and basically say, this is what we believe. They don't even say right. that. They just don't really say much else about it. So let's talk about the third. The third guy is uh, Adolf Heineke, uh, which, or Heineke, however you want to pronounce it, which for uh, our Wisconsin Synod uh, listeners, you would recognize him as kind of the premier dogmatician of the Wisconsin Synod. And Heineke is also the one who argues that you can't really pinpoint a specific point in time, what he calls a site punct. It's which, you know, mathematical, like it happens exactly at this point. But he argues for what he calls a moment or a moment or a broader span of time and saying that it is during this broader understanding of time during the reception that the union occurs. So this is also something that is presented as being, you know, the orthodox position also within the Wisconsin Synod, even as Wisconsin is turning towards a more confessional position. So uh, it's very much the position of that generation of theologians. And as a result, within the Wisconsin Synod and within the Missouri Synod, it becomes kind of the, uh, the, the, the position for at least a good generation, that this is what you, know, you, I mean, this is what we teach. Now, of course, there has been pushback in more recent years, but where do you want to go from, from that point? Well, before really? we get into questions of duration and things like that, we need to talk about what's generally considered the opposite position of this, and that's consecrationism. Right. So would you give us a brief definition of consecrationism? I might have to lean on you for, 
for help on this one. All right. Because <laughs> I I've been so focused on receptionism that I haven't really taken the time to th- to do the work on consecrationism. But I would see consecrationism as a belief in the the power of the words of institution to bring about the union with with i would say in the best possible explanation that it also includes the totality of the sacramental action so it's really an emphasis to try to put the union at the beginning of the action and throughout the whole rather than just at the end which is what receptionism is doing now it gets presented in so many different ways which is why i'm kind of humming and hawing on it here right now but how would you build on that willie you know, is it fair to say that consecrationism is reduced then just to, like in modern terms, just it happens at the words of institution, at the verba? Yeah. I mean, that that, that is how it's often presented. I would say that's, that's usually how you hear it, like saying, like, at the words of institution, it becomes the body and blood. And, you know, for that reason, we should treat it as such. I do think that that's a fair position, and I'm willing to be corrected on that by anyone who, you know, who's listening. But I think that's usually how how people um, argue for this point. But in in the strictest sense and in the proper sense, we're talking about a a union that occurs throughout the whole of this. And so what you have is this kind of thing going on. Can you say at what point it becomes the body and blood? That's the tricky question. But what you right. can say is that after this point, it ceases to be merely bread and wine. And that would be at the verba. There is no question what is on the altar after the verba. Right. And the verba meaning uh, the words of institution. One thing that I would caution against, though, with this is we don't want to fall into, I mean, we would say the verba in general. Because there was, there is, is, and was a debate in Rome. You know, sure. which word in particular affects the union? Like yeah, you know, which syllable wanna, of which yeah, word? Yeah, we don't want to break it down that way, and we don't want to be superstitious about it and say, like, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode. If I say it too loud, and you can hear it in the kitchen, and there's a loaf of bread in there, is it now consecrated? <laughs> I do think intention what? might actually matter here. Uh, right. Not, not trying to put emphasis on the man doing it, but. I do think intention is actually important here. Now, not that it depends upon you know the worthiness of a minister or anything, just simply to say that it's not an incantation that consecrates every piece of bread and every drop of wine within earshot. Right. You know, you well, know the wine that's locked up in in the back room or wherever you store your wine. You know, for for other masses, is it now consecrated because somebody left the door open and the sound traveled? That is far too rationalistic. Far too of a rationalistic way to look at that. And I'm not sure that anybody actually believes that, uh, right. of course. But if you push and push and push on the when of something like this, you actually will kind of start to fall into these these traps. So after the verb was spoken, all I'm saying is that's there's no question about what, what is there. Uh, otherwise, right. I, I do think it becomes a bit you know, dishonest. And I'm not saying that receptionists are, are dishonest here, but I do think it's, it matters. That when I consecrate the elements as a pastor, any pastor, and we turn around, I'm, I have a ad orientum altar always in my mind and heart. And <laughs> so we've consecrated and we turn around and we distribute the elements, which is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, given and shed for the forgiveness of sins. And we say, take, eat. This is my body. Or, you know, or excuse me, you know, the, uh, take and eat the body of Christ you know, given for you or take and drink the blood of Christ shed for you, whatever you say, you're telling them what it is and what to do at that. I mean, you're actually telling them at that point, this is Christ's body. So there is no question in there of what they're receiving and it already is what they're about to receive. And I think that that matters. And, and, and so is there a bit of a mystery about when, when the Holy spirit descends during the, (laughs) you know, about, about when it, when it is the body and blood, is there a bit of a mystery there? A- absolutely. And we're supposed to be able to um, to embrace that as, as Lutherans. And I think that's something you see in patristics too, frankly. But after those words are said, there is no question, is, is really what I'm trying to get across here. Right. So not to say that, boom, magic, it happens, but simply to say that I can't, I may not be able to tell you the exact moment when it is, when it 
but I can tell you the at which time it is not merely bread and wine. Right. Is that is that position? Uh, it's no. it's kind of hard to to vocalize that that position because everything's you know kind of kind of wonky there. But you know that that is the case. And what's happened in places where receptionism is perhaps emphasized as I, as I do think that it has led to irreverence, not in, not intentional irreverence, mind you. Right. But, but there have, there have been cases of, of irreverence. And that brings us to this next question. If you, if you don't mind me going on is right. after the service is done, does it continue to be the body and blood of Jesus? Is there any way that we can honestly answer that question? There's no way that you can convince me that it isn't to where I'm going to treat it as if it's not, different now. Right. You know, as, as I recall seeing the Presbyterian church, you know, you would have the Lord's supper and then whatever was left of the loaf, the kids would just eat after service or something. You know, somebody would bake the loaf. It was admittedly delicious and, but it would just become regular food after that. Right. There is just such a longstanding practice within the church from the beginning of treating the, the consecrated elements with reverence and treating them the same as you would the body and blood, because it's believed that they are. Now, here's why the Lutheran practice has been to consume the elements after they're done, because that eliminates the need for this kind of speculation. And that's that's really my whole point here. I don't want to give the wrong impression, is that this is ultimately a speculative question because the scriptures do not tell us. Specifically, you know, this is how long, or this is, you know, at what point it ceases to be. And so my practice has been to just consume entirely because then the question ends and we don't have to have this debate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I do. If there is a rare occasion where something is, is left over, at least as the practice of my parish, the, the, the bread is is always consumed. It's, it's usually the wine. And this is kind of one of the difficulties with individual cups where you might end up with 150 more or something. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is never put back with with common wine, and it is used at the next at the next service. That that it, it right. usually it, it we don't go long enough to where something's going to spoil or anything like that. But it is treated as different from the regular wine. Right, right, absolutely. And and I can't be really budged from that position that it should be treated differently. Um, and, and frankly, you know, I mean, I, I really do fall on the side of it, of it continues to be because I. I I'd, I'd rather err on the side of honoring the Lord's body and blood. Right. Uh, now, right. Now, that, now, but that brings us to another question then. Do we need to be careful in the Lutheran church about the use of monst- about the use of monstrances and tabernacles? Now, monstrance is used in the solid declaration. Do they, do they use tabernacle? Because a tabernacle and a monstrance are, are, are I mean, they're, they're two different characters, right? So let's take a tabernacle, for example. If you're using the tabernacle simply as a vessel to store these consecrated elements, I don't think that's a bad thing. That's a, that's a special vessel for holy things. So we're going to put it sure. there. Now, the question is, though, beyond that, where does the theology go? So I've got a tabernacle. Am I using it for perpetual adoration? You know, why do I feel the need to do this? Is there a reason I'm not consuming the elements? You know, and what that reason is, I think, makes a difference. You know, is is there too much to consume? Is that being a purely pragmatic decision? You know, if if I'm thinking of it in those terms, and I know that people are going to have scruples with what you or I do at our parishes, right? Nobody's ever going to be pleased, but but neither of us, Zellin, are going to treat these elements uh, with dith- with with disrespect. But we also not. make every effort just to simply eat and drink, right? So as to avoid these things. So a tabernacle, I think, is different from a monstrance. There is adoration, though, to one degree or another, of the host in, in many Lutheran liturgies, as they're said without, throughout the Missouri Synod, and I'm sure even in the Wisconsin Synod, so that we do bow at certain points or even genuflect, um, depending on your, on your practice. So there is a little bit of adoration that goes on within the context of the divine service. Okay? The question is then, is adoration correct outside of that? And what do we mean by adoration? Is it right for a Lutheran to adopt the Roman Catholic understanding of adoration of the host? 
as if they receive something by just being near it and pondering upon the consecrated bread in a golden vessel. This is where sometimes I get a little bit hesitant because in our desire to run away from receptionism, and I agree, it is an error. I'm not saying that it isn't. It is an error. But are we going to you know, go so far in the other direction that we end up actually inadvertently adopting Roman Catholic notions, like you say? Is it right to show respect to the elements just as we show respect to all of the holy things? Yes, absolutely. But the question then becomes, do we continue to do these things like in in areas where there's at least ambiguity and and why do and why are we doing them? Are we mm-hmm. doing them so that we don't appear Protestant because I think sometimes that gets uh, thrown around? Are we doing it because, you know, we're just trying to show how much we I don't know. How do, you know what you know what you get what I'm you get what I'm getting at, Willie? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's the where we have to have some discernment here. I do think there's some liberty here. I think there's some things you just shouldn't do. But most of the things I think you shouldn't do lean towards the the desecration of holy things, and, sure. and which, which frankly is probably more of a problem. Sure. I mean, honestly, I'm talking about monstrances. monstrances I almost said the remonstrance, but I'm, I'm talking about <laughs> you know Eucharistic adoration within a Missouri Synod congregation. Okay, well, what's more likely to happen? Somebody throwing the body and blood into the trash. You know, what, what, what's actually right. more likely to happen within one of our congregations? And it's the right. latter. And so I, I just think we want to err on the side of respect and honor to what God has set aside. But we have to use some discernment here. And, and frankly, we need, we need pastors to, to ponder upon this more, perhaps, so that you don't have silly practices going on within the within the divine service or excuse me after the divine service i i don't think that the the consecrated elements should just be thrown away for, for example and yeah you know and and that sort of thing and that's really what we have to to think about here so the the receptionism versus consecrationism question goes from what is the sacrament or when is it the sacrament you know and the receptionists are are, are focused more on the benefit and i and you know, they're, they're more concerned with that. And the consecration aside, it's almost like they're talking past each other because one side is more focused upon the when it becomes and another side is concerned about getting the totality so that you don't end up uh, neglecting the sacrament at all. But it evolves into a conversation about how long does it remain the body and blood? And then we come up with all of these, these questions of then how do we treat it? Which is a real, it's a relatively simple it's a relatively simple thing if you just eat it, but sometimes that doesn't that doesn't happen that way. And the, unfortunately, we do live at a time where practice concerning the Lord's Supper is all over the board, even within Lutheran right. congregations. Right. And so a pastor never really knows what he's what he's going into. So a classical receptionist position might not be the worst thing you encounter. <laughs> At a uh, at a congregation, as far as the Lord's Supper goes, provided that it's it's what we're actually defining as receptionism and not as a kind of irreverent, the irreverent man that it usually gets presented as. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about a, an actual position, like something Gerhard would would articulate. Right. Now, I, I mean, you've got to really do some teaching, though, if, if you show up and someone thinks it's only the body and blood once it hits my tongue or my esophagus. Right. You know, I think that's a problem. Likewise, and this is not the receptionist position, but it does get tied with it. If you say something like, my faith is what makes it the body and blood. Again, not the receptionist position, but sometimes confused with that position. Right. We don't, we don't want to do that. I mean, because then that puts everything upon the individual and their faith plus their ability to chew. So any last words on this, uh, in this subject as we, as we wrap this episode up? I would just, again, if we're dealing with a question of, you know, receptionism versus consecrationism, try to be fair in your positions, understand that there are important differences between people. And just because, you know, somebody might quibble with a certain practice doesn't mean that it's somehow 
you know, bad or something. But then again, don't treat it with disrespect either. So we really just need to strive to listen to one another more than anything, I think is really the, the point. Sure. Yeah. I mean, read the old books and actually listen to what each other is saying and, you know, go <laughs> go from there. Well, all right, folks, that was a particularly technical episode for us. We hope you enjoyed that. We'll be back and, and more lively next week with more Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi. God love you and God bless. What is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, under the bread and wine, for us Christians to eat and to drink, instituted by Christ himself.